going to be in John chapter 3, which was just read for us. It's on page 887 in your blue pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. John chapter 3. I'll, uh, I'll take a moment now to pray and ask God to be with us as we turn to his word. Um, dear God in heaven, we thank you for gathering us this morning on this Lord's Day in this embassy of your kingdom to raise us up as ambassadors for your king. And Lord, we, we submit like citizens of your kingdom, we submit now to your word as you read it and speak it over us through John 3. And we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us not only to understand this word in John 3 about the new birth, Lord, but to respond to it accordingly. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. This fall, we have been in a sermon series called Pillars. And we've been looking at four pillars we think that are necessary, they're not the only pillars, but four pillars that are necessary for a church to be biblical. We looked at worship. A church ought to glorify Christ. We looked at community. The church is meant to gather together in the name of Christ. We looked at discipleship. We're meant to grow to be more like Christ. And then we looked at mission. We're meant to go into the world for Christ and in the next few weeks, we're going to spend some more time around this fourth pillar, mission. We're gonna run our hands along it and try to make sure we understand it. What does it mean to be sent into the world on mission for Christ? And we saw two weeks ago when we looked at John 17, we saw that, that our mission is really modeled after Jesus' mission and it flows from his mission. So twice, Jesus says in John to his followers, he says, as the Father sent me into the world, just so I am sending you into the world. So whatever else our mission may involve, it must be modeled after Jesus' mission and it must flow from his. And what we'll see over these next several weeks is that Jesus' mission revolves around bringing about in our midst three great new realities. Jesus came to bring to individuals new life. Jesus came to gather a new people, a new humanity, a new way of being together and being human. And Jesus came to inaugurate a new kingdom. So new life new people, a new kingdom. We're going to have to move about in these aspects of Jesus' mission, asking how ours flow from these. And we're starting right at the center, or you might say we're starting at the depths with new life. You have no part in the kingdom. You are not among the people of God unless you have new life. And we'll see how Jesus teaches this today. We're going to be on life, new life the next two weeks. This is new life part one. Next week will be new life part two. So Jesus came to bring life. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Well, what exactly is this life? How do you get it? How do you know you have it? How does Jesus give it? And how does this new life given by Jesus, how does this shape our own mission? 
your own purpose in life, our purpose as a church right here and now. It's with these questions that we're gonna turn to John chapter three today. And in this chapter, really in the beginning of it, we find Jesus in his first year of ministry. He's gone up to Jerusalem for the great feast, the Passover feast. And a religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by the cloak of darkness. He's shy. He doesn't want to be outed as a follower yet, but he's curious. So he comes to him. And in this interaction, you're going to see that Jesus is going to bring up something he calls being born again or the new birth. And what we're going to find is that for Jesus, new life requires new birth. And this is essentially the idea we're going to have to wrestle with today. So let me just show you um, by reading the first few verses how all these themes get brought right out onto the table in the beginning of this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. So this is John 3 picking up at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, Nicodemus is a well-educated religious leader. Jesus will refer to him in verse 10 as a teacher of Israel. And while Nicodemus opens with what feels like flattery, verse two, we know, Jesus, you're a teacher come from God because of all the miracles, all the signs you're doing. While he opens with flattery, he's, he's really come with questions. He wants to know if Jesus is more than a teacher, perhaps the great prophet. And if Jesus, verse two, has come from God, as Nicodemus says, he wants to know what Jesus' views are on the questions of the day, particularly pertaining to the kingdom of God. He wants to know when it arrives, who gets into it. Now, questions about the kingdom of God were commonplace in Jesus' day. These aren't the questions you're going about asking, at least not on the face of it. But in the essence of these, you're asking this all the time. When's the world going to be put to rights? Where do I find hope? Will my life mean anything? Will I die one day and just be nothing or go to hell? Or will I live forever? All these, all these questions that often just operate under the surface of all the other things we're doing. These questions were relevant in the first century too. And they orbited for Jews around the question of God's kingdom. You see, Jewish people in the first century, many anticipated a time when God would dramatically enter into history and he would restore the fortunes of the people of Israel and he'd inaugurate his great eternal perfect kingdom and his chosen people would be brought in and they would be given eternal life. And so Jesus passes all pleasantries and cuts right to the heart of the matter in his response to Nicodemus' comment about Jesus being a good teacher. Verse three, Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse seven, 
Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is claiming that no one enters the kingdom of God nor inherits eternal life unless they're born again. So whatever else the mission of Jesus involves, whatever else our mission will involve, it can't be less than the new birth. It must center upon this because Jesus is saying there's no other doorway. Unless one is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I just want to put us in Nicodemus' shoes, not above him judging him, but in his shoes, and consider these three questions that might have arisen in his mind during this interaction. Number one, why is the new birth necessary? Number two, what happens in the new birth? How is it possible? What's new? And number three, how do you know if you've been born again through the new birth? What are some evidences or signs of this new birth? So why is it necessary? What happens in the new birth and what are signs that it's happened? So first, why is the new birth necessary? Jesus presents the new birth as a necessity. Both in verses three and verse five, he uses the phrase unless. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse seven, he uses the word must. You can just circle the word must there. He says, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. So Jesus is presenting this as a necessity but why is it necessary? Nicodemus and his contemporaries would have thought much about the requirements for being able to enter into God's kingdom. And chief of these were scrupulous observance of the commandments of the law and a great devotion in religious practice, always going to synagogue or always coming up for the feasts. So to, to the problem of being outside the kingdom, Nicodemus would have expected Jesus to prescribe the remedy of more moral performance. Go to church more, don't swear as much, keep the rules, you'll get in. Maybe a, a high bar, but certainly a bar that a devoted man like Nicodemus or like you could, could um, hurdle. However, um, Jesus seems to suggest that the problem is far worse and he pre prescribes something far more radical. Imagine um, if you went to see the doctor because of shortness of breath and you know, they, they were gonna do some tests, maybe an EKG and you're, you're imagining, you know, the problem is you probably have gotten out of shape. He's gonna tell you you need to get in better shape or worse, maybe you have asthma. You'll need to leave with an inhaler. And the doctor comes back from running the EKG and in all seriousness, he says to you, you, you have to get a heart transplant. And you're shocked. And the only thing you can infer from this prescribed remedy is that you have a way worse problem than a few extra pounds or the need for an inhaler. And this is, you see, this is what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus and with us, like a good physician. He's offering us a prescription, a remedy, 
you have to be born again, that assumes a way deeper problem. We expect entrance to the kingdom, if there is one, to involve being good and religious people, being kind, justice-seeking, morally upright, church-attending, nice people. But instead, Jesus says we need a heart transplant. We need to be born again. There's something wrong with us that can only be fixed by total transformation. The new birth is necessary because we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead, we're morally twisted, and we're legally guilty before God. This is, this is the human condition that the Bible teaches that we all share when we're under sin. You know, most people have no idea what's wrong with them. They have no idea. They have no idea what's wrong with us or wrong with our world. And many of us, we, we tend to mistake our real problems really just for a lack of effort, don't we? I mean, if I could just try harder next year, a little more moral tenacity. Or on the other hand, we mistake our problems for things around us, our social environments, our family of origin, or our political systems. We think these things are the root of our problems. Dostoevsky he takes on this line of thinking that ultimately the root of our problems are outside of us. He takes this on in his brilliant novel, Crime and Punishment, where debaters in the middle of the novel surmise that the real cause of sin and crime is social environment. Quoting now, crime is a protest against the abnormality, abnormality of the social setup. That alone and nothing more. A social system coming out of some mathematical head will at once organize the whole of mankind and instantly make it righteous and sinless. Now certainly our social environments affect us profoundly, but we often miss the fact that these negative social environments are created by people. And they keep making them in every culture, in every epoch. So Jesus does not say to Nicodemus, no one enters the kingdom of God unless you socially build it. Nor does he say, no one enters the kingdom of God until we evolve into moral perfection. No, Jesus says no one enters the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. A few years ago, um, someone from a different church emailed me with what I, I thought was a really good question. She was going through the Anglican catechism. Now the Anglican catechism, a catechism is just a tool the church has used for thousands of years um, for how you teach people. It's, it's set up in a question and answer format. And her confusion was, um, and you have to give her credit for wondering this, is she said, why does the Anglican catechism start with such a horrible view of human nature? It's so negative. So I looked it up, she was right. In part one, right out of the gate, it asks the question, what is the human condition? Not a bad question, is it? Answer, the universal human condition is that, though made for fellowship with our creator, humanity has been cut off from God by self-centered rebellion against him, 
leading to lawless living, guilt, shame, death, and the fear of judgment. This is the state of sin. It goes on. How does sin affect you? Apart from Christ, I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. Not exactly the self-esteem movement. It's worth asking yourself, how well has the self-esteem movement worked? Just look at mental health statistics. Now, the Anglican Catechism is just echoing the Heidelberg Catechism from 400 years earlier. Now, these catechisms would have been read on the Lord's Day. Families, parents, you would have gone home with the Heidelberg Catechism and there would have been a reading, Lord's Day 1, Lord's Day 2, and you would have read these to your kids. So here's one of the first questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. How many things must I know to live? That's a great question. It answers the magnitude of my sin and wretchedness and how, I'm, how I am relieved from my sin. Friends, Christians have always taught this that the human condition is dire. That's why we need the rebirth. And you know, I think if we're honest, isn't it hard to accept this about yourself? Like there's some people who, who are like probably psychos in prison and they don't have any problem. They're like, yeah, I'm definitely that bad. And we're like, yeah, you're definitely that bad. But isn't it hard? Aren't you like, I just don't feel that bad. I don't wake up feeling like I'm wretched. Like I hate God. Certainly I don't wake up feeling like I deserve hell. And you see, when we think this way, we make a huge error. Let me tell you what the error is. Once I say it, I hope you'll never miss it again. Here's the error. We self-diagnose based on feelings. What makes you think your feelings are the arbiter of truth? You know that your physical health is not always, always related to your feelings. You may walk into the doctor feeling fine and he may say, you've got cancer. And you say, but I feel okay. Yeah, but you got cancer, but I feel okay. Does it matter? If that's true with our physical health, if you can't always trust your feelings to tell you what's real, how much more so with your spiritual health? Jeremiah, the prophet, was spot on when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's what's happening in John 3. The great physician... The God who is love is lovingly diagnosing us. He's not one of these doctors who's so desperate to make you like him that he'll just tell you whatever you want to hear. He's a good doctor. He came because he loves you. And so this is the diagnosis. It is so bad that there is nothing you can do to get into the kingdom of heaven unless you be born again. Nicodemus was incredulous. How can this be? So that's why the new birth is necessary because we're spiritually dead, morally twisted and legally guilty before God. And we can't fix any of this on our own. And no matter how our feelings feel, this is what Jesus who came down from heaven is telling us our condition is. That's why it's necessary. Second, let's ask what it is. Well, how does it happen? What goes on in the new birth? Nicodemus doesn't understand. Verse four, he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So exactly, I mean, it's a great question. Jesus, what do you mean by this? And maybe you grew up making fun of born again Christians, right? They're just the wackos, right? Oh, she's born again. 
Well, let's go past all that and ask Jesus, what do you mean when you say born again? It's his term. It's picked up by Peter. It's used by Paul when he talks about regeneration. What do you mean? What happens? Well, Jesus responds to Nicodemus' confusion in verse four with an answer in verses five through eight that not only states that the new birth can happen, but sheds some light on what exactly happens when one is born again. So picking up at verse five, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Notice three things about what happens in the new birth from Jesus' response. Number one, God causes it. God causes the new birth, not man. This is what lies behind Jesus' words in verse five, unless one is born of water and the spirit. Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. Water refers to the cleansing from sin. And all this looks back to a prophecy from hundreds of years prior that was given in Ezekiel. Now I'm going to read this for you. Before I read it, I want to tell you why this is important. It's an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel 36, all about the new birth. But this kind of prophecy is why Jesus is upset with Nicodemus for not understanding this. He says in verse 10, how can you be the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He can say that because as you'll see, if you read Ezekiel 36, excuse me, Nicodemus probably would have had it memorized. If you read this and understand it, how could you miss that humanity would have to be born again in order to enter the new covenant in God's kingdom? Ezekiel 36, picking up at verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the water and spirit images? This is why Jesus says in verse five, born of water and spirit. The water cleanses from sin. The spirit is the spirit of life that gives a new heart. And I want you to notice that this is God speaking He declares one day he will give his people a heart transplant and put his spirit within them. And notice that it's God doing the acting. God says, I will take, I will sprinkle, I will cleanse, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. The point is simply this. What happens in the new birth? God acts. God acts sovereignly acts to bring about new life. Just as a human being cannot cause their own natural birth, so too a fallen sinner cannot cause their spiritual new birth. Now God's 
power and action in this. That's a point we're going to return to at the end because it actually is your key to having confidence in the mission of bringing new life to others. But that's what happens in a new birth. Number one, God acts. Number two, it is spiritual in its nature. Verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Born of the spirit is spirit. It's spiritual in nature, the new birth, which is why if you're born again, you didn't wake up and get a new body. The odometer has the same miles on it. You can still feel the pull of the flesh. You're still in this world. You still struggle with cravings for sin. This is what the whole New Testament is trying to work out. People are born again. They have a new spirit inside of them, a new heart. And this heart has new sensibilities. It's capable, even in little movements, to actually love God. It is capable to obey God from a pure heart. And it is a new heart that because it's been cleansed of sin, legally, it's no longer guilty before God. It no longer is a heart that is God's enemy or in rebellion. Rather, it's a son or a daughter. But it lives in this great tension. And the the spiritual nature you have, if you're born again, it points to the day, as Paul says in Romans 8, it points to the day when that very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise your body from the dead and give you a perfected body like his. But right now, friends, the new birth is spiritual in nature. That which is of the spirit is spirit. Third, this is all just what happens in the new birth. God does it. It's spiritual in nature right now. Third, it's mysterious. But you can notice its effects. I love the uh, simile Jesus uses in verses seven and eight with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is confused. Like you can't see a new birth. He's like, I'm still an old man. Do I have to climb back in my mother's womb? He doesn't understand. So Jesus uses a simile. He looks at the wind. And again, this is kind of an ancient mindset. And he basically says, look, the wind, this is verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you're not gonna completely understand when exactly and how exactly God brings about the new birth in someone. But Nicodemus, you will be able to tell it happened. You know, when you, um, in the summertime, maybe you sleep with your window open and you'll say, I hear the wind rustling in the trees. You're not hearing the wind. You're hearing leaves scraping and branches scraping under the influence of the wind, which you can't hear and is invisible. That's the same thing Jesus is saying about the new birth. You look at a person, they were born again the last week, they don't look any different. But Jesus says, you can hear it sound. You can notice its effects. And the fact that it's mysterious, and and by the way, our third point is all asking, what are these effects? But let me just keep on this mysterious element. We struggle with things we can't fully understand or fully control. And so when someone tells you the new birth is caused by God, you immediately get into this old conversation between free will and God's sovereignty. No, I make the new birth happen. Just think of your age right now. Let's say you're 20 and go back 22 years. You do not exist. What could you do to bring yourself into existence? Nothing. That's the analogy Jesus is using. 
It's a mystery that God acts upon us. But Jesus also will say, I'll show you this, that one of the signs new birth is happening is belief. If you believe in him, you're born again. Well, you say, I'm believing, I'm doing that. So who's doing the first acting? Well, can a dead person believe? No. So it seems like God brings you to life and almost the first gasp for air is belief. And as soon as you're believing, God's acted, but you are believing. So I'm just gonna say, friends, it's a mystery how God brings this about, but the deep point, and this is the point I don't want you to forget, if God doesn't act, we have no hope. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. So that's, that's a little bit about what happens in the new birth. Um, let me just move to a final question. So we, we, we saw why it's necessary. We saw a little bit about what happens. Finally, what are evidences it's happened to you? Because maybe you're wondering right now, I don't know, I did that sinner's prayer when I was 12. I don't feel very holy most of the time. Was I born again? I'm not gonna be able to answer that for you exhaustively or perfectly because only God knows. But let me give you some evidences. And I'm gonna give you evidences because Jesus says, Nicodemus, the wind blows. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you hear its sound. So I believe what Jesus is saying is, you can pick up on when this has happened. Let me give you three evidences, three signs, three sounds in the branches of the new birth. Number one, repentance. In Jesus' first recorded sermon, Mark 1 verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance means feeling sorrowful or feeling contrition for your sins, not just because they messed up your life. You don't have to be a Christian to not like the fact that sins mess up your life. Repentance is when you start to be brokenhearted of the offense of your sins against God. Even if you've been getting away with them, even if your sins seem to be making your life go better, it breaks your heart that you sin against a holy God and you tremble because you begin to believe, like we say every Sunday in the creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And you begin to realize all your chirping about justice is gonna reverberate right back on you one day and you tremble. If anything like this is happening to you right now, like if you could just think of everything you've done in your life or you're thinking in your head right now playing on a video screen for the whole world to watch, if anything in that makes you tremble before a holy God, it may be a sign that you're born again. It may be a sign that the new birth is acting upon you right now. And repentance also means not just contrition, but turning away. So if in your life you truly are starting to turn away from sin and you're wanting to turn to Jesus and it's just kind of happening, that could be an evidence. Evidence two, Belief. Jesus uses the word belief five times between verses 15 and 18. And in the famous verse, um, John 3, 16, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I wonder if you've ever heard that verse in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Maybe you'll read it differently now. Now, belief, this is an evidence of the new birth. Belief in the biblical sense means both something of the mind and something of the heart. It means that the mind is beginning to assent to certain facts, right? Jesus is God. He really came and he really rose from the dead. This is a fact. 
The resurrection's a historical fact. You're believing that. But you're also believing that he died for my sins and that he's my Lord. But you're not just grasping this with your mind. You are collapsing into the arms of Jesus. Belief collapses into the arms of Jesus as not only your Lord and Savior, but as your friend. As your friend. As your soul's best friend. If you have any experience like that going on in your life, it could be an evidence of the new birth. And, 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 a, and an important qualifier here, friends, even when you are born again and it's based in repentance and belief, the actions of God all underneath this, you will go through seasons of doubt. You will go through seasons of falling into sin. You will go, in fact, you'll feel more drag against your sin nature because now you're swimming against the current. So I don't want you to think any failings and frustrations are a sign that you're not born again, but it would be a problem if you arrogantly think everything I'm saying is foolish. Friend, if that's you, that's a real problem. And you may think that. And all, my, one of my jobs on Sunday morning is clarity. I just want you to walk out crystal clear. You walk out saying the Jesus talk, foolishness. Sins forgiven, ridiculous. Don't need it. That's a bad sign. Not according to me, according to Jesus. Third sign would be affection. So repentance, belief, and then affections. Now, th this means when you're born again, your spiritual nature, you, this doesn't mean like passions of the flesh. You still can feel all these fleshly passions going every which way, driving you crazy. But there's a subtle thing of the new heart. It's, it's, it's an affection that feels more like if you can imagine clean mountain air wafting through Los Angeles when you're walking through on a smoggy day. And it's different. It's different. And, and what it is, is when you find yourself loving God for God. Not just because he did some signs. Jesus isn't impressed with the people that like him because of miracles. He's not impressed with the people that like him just because he could fix their lives. He's impressed with those people that start to push everything else away and say, for your own sake, thou art lovely. You are my friend. Jesus, I don't know how this happened, but I love you. That's a sign. That's an evidence. That's the wind rustling the branches of the tree that there's new life. We need to close now with just a very quick um, two points of implications. This isn't really application. The sermon next week is all application of this. But what are the implications that the mission of new life requires the new birth? What are the implications of that teaching for us and our mission? Two, the first implication is that evangelism takes a logical priority in Christian missions. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, God's at work in an expansive way in the world. And the Bible teaches that one day he'll make all things new. So he's doing all kinds of amazing things. So if you're a Christian and you have new life, you should care about a lot of stuff. You should care about fixing people's temporal needs, feeding the poor, working for justice, getting people out of human trafficking, maybe running for political office so that you can bring about good public policies. These are things you should want to do. They're also things that non-Christians will do. But there is something about the mission of new life, about offering new birth to people 
that requires evangelism. What is evangelism? Here's my definition. You can write it down. Evangelism, using words to make the real Jesus non-ignorable to another human being. Evangelism, using words to make the real Jesus, not a fake Jesus, the real Jesus non-ignorable to another human being. Friends, evangelism is not the only thing we do, but I wanna convince you in the weeks ahead, it is the most precious, it's the most unique, because no one else in the world's gonna do it, and it's the most important. And remember I said evangelism takes a logical priority. I said logical priority because it may not always come first. If you meet a person destitute, hungry, doesn't have enough food, you probably should help them get food before you evangelize them. You may need to build a relationship over a long period of time before you evangelize. It won't always come first, but logically in the ordering of their deepest realist need, it's a priority. That's the first implication. And we're gonna spend the whole sermon next week trying to unpack how do we have an evangelistic encounter with the Western world right now? Friends, I want to grow in this. This intimidates me. It scares me. And that's a good thing. I hope you feel that too. The last implication, remember I said that God causes a new birth. I want this to put indestructible confidence over our conversation about evangelism and missions next week. Because when things feel impossible for us, you feel like it's impossible for some of your adult kids or some of your friends ever come to know the Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. And so I want you to feel when you go to the gym, when you go into your workplace and you're like, there's no way anybody here will ever turn. I want you to hear God moving, saying to Israel, I will cleanse you. I will put a new heart in you. I will put you in the land. I will remove your heart of stone and put in you my spirit. I will do it. God's sovereign action is our confidence in mission. So that's a little bit about Jesus' mission to bring new life through the new birth. Next week, we ask how we take that message to others. Lord, thank you for this um, profound teaching from Jesus. Lord, I submit to it as the rector of the Falls Church and I pray that we all would follow your lead, Jesus, into being people who are about the new birth. Amen.